Jewish audio on Kabbalah.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Chobel, Umazik, damage, injury, Fedek Shavii, chapter 7. Here's an interesting law. We've been talking about damaging people's property. Hamazik, Momon, Chavei, Hezik, Shein, and Nikir. What if somebody damages the financial holdings of another, but in a way that you can't really see the damage? You look at it, you inspect it, you analyze it, it looks the same. But you know it's damaged. So the halach is, that being that it did not change, the object didn't change, its shape, its form, its essence, was not lost, was not transformed, even though, as we will explain, a damage was caused. But by Torah law, you can't see the damage, you can't observe it, then he's not liable to pay, by Torah law. But rabbinic law states, our sages taught, that being that, he caused the value of this object to go down, there was the value. He's liable. He has to pay. That which he caused, the reduction in value. So it used to be worth $100, and now it's worth $50 because of what he did, even though you can't see it. He has to pay him the loss of $50. How could this be? That damage was done and you can't see it, and it doesn't look different, it doesn't feel different. Ketzat, for example, we've learned extensively the laws of purity and impurity. Somebody had pure food. Somebody comes along and defiles that food, puts a dead rodent on it, or what have you. And then he leaves him and his rodent, and you look at the food, looks the same. Or there was produce. Produce needs truma to be taken from it, the 2% given to the Kohen. If you don't take the truma, you can't eat it. He took somebody's produce that had truma taken from it and mixed it with other produce that didn't have truma taken from it. He got a problem. It's now worth less. In fact, you're not even allowed to eat it. Or he took wine that was poured before an idol. This is called yayin nesach, wine that was poured before an idol. And he mixed it into somebody else's wine. So now he ruined a case, a cellar full of somebody else's wine, a barrel. Because as we learned in the laws of yayin nesach, he now caused all of the wine to be prohibited, and so on. There are many other such examples. So one evaluates, the court evaluates, the appraisers evaluate the laws, and he has to pay the complete damage. And again, we've learned many times, the preferable source of payment is cash, or movable holdings, if he has none, from grade AAA real estate, from the Beverly Hills real estate. Like all others, who cause damage. This thing, this payment, this is actually a penalty, prescribed by our sages, because biblically, there's no visible damage. Our sages said, if we don't impose this penalty, then all the VCs, what's a VC? All the wild animals are going to go and defile people's holdings, defile people's produce. But Amy's going to say, as he used to say when I was a kid in Newark, do me something. I am not liable. Therefore, being that it's only a rabbinic penalty and not a financial obligation by Torah law, there is a practical difference. This fellow who caused this non-palatable damage died. Usually when somebody causes damage and dies, you collect from his estate. Here, being that it's only a rabbinic penalty. It is not collected from his estate. Because our sages only penalized somebody who did. And as the Rambam explains, the reason for this penalty is because our sages say if we penalize him, it'll be a deterrent factor. Once the guy dies, you don't need a deterrent factor because he's dead. So the fact that you're going to penalize the estate doesn't help. The heir who did nothing wrong, they did not penalize him. So also if somebody does this inadvertently, or more than inadvertently, accidentally, he's exempt, because he only penalized one who intended to do this with kavona, with focus. Now comes an interesting law. We learned earlier extensively the law of Pigul. What's Pigul? The Kohen who ministers, who works the korban for the donor, who brings it to the base on the English, if he thought, an inappropriate thought, and there are so many details in this law at the time, he invalidates the offering. For example, at certain points in the ritual, he thought that the sacrifice will be consumed in its inappropriate time or place or what have you. Different thoughts. What if a Kohen causes a sacrifice to be rendered pigul, and therefore it can't be used? Be amazing. What if the Kohen does it intentionally? The Kohen says, I'll get this guy. He didn't want to buy me a cup of coffee in Starbucks. I'm going to pigul his sacrifice. I'm going to be Bagel his sacrifice. Actually, this is a damage. So the Kohen could be forced to pay. The court should force him to pay. Why? Because you can't do this, even though what exactly did he do? You're going to penalize somebody for thinking? If he does it intentionally, he has to pay. It's the same type of crime. But if he does it inadvertently, purity is exempt. He can't blame somebody for having a thought without intent. Again, we learned extensively that you can't do any work with the red heifer. Any red heifer that is worked with is not fit to be a red heifer. With the water that is drawn for the ritual of the red heifer. You have to always focus on it. You can't lose focus. And all the detailed laws. If somebody does this, he, works, he takes the red heifer and works it for five minutes. You know, a red heifer could be worth a lot of money, but they're rare. It could be worth a million dollars. In one minute, you can ruin a million dollars. Chayim, if he does this intentionally, he's obligated to shalom to pay. But if it was unintentional, inadvertent, Parker is actually exempt because you can say, show me where the damage is. And without intent, this is not really damage, although it may be tremendous damage. You have a red heifer, or an almost red heifer, and somebody took it to the place where a team of cows are threshing, and that's where its mother is, or that's where its nursing mother is, and his intent is that it should nurse. But don't tell anybody. He's also thinking, while it's nursing, let it thresh along with the other cows. Now, the nursing is a good thing. The threshing will invalidate it because the cow is not allowed, the heifer is not allowed to work. So what happened here? His thought was inappropriate. Or we see of that, or a person who's carrying water designated for the ashes of the red heifer. We learned this in great detail. And he diverts his attention from the water for even one minute and focuses on something else. And we learn these detailed laws. So he ruins this water. You've got to travel another five miles to get water and not lose the focus. 
of guarding the water. Potter be denied, he's exempt from the laws of man because there's nothing that you can put your hands on that he did. Well, he lost focus. But by God's law, he's culpable. What if somebody takes the wine of his fellow Jew and intentionally goes and pours it before an idol, making it, I would think, idolatrous wine? Says the Rambam, absolutely not. The wine does not even become forbidden. Why not? Because we learned in the laws of idolatry, in the laws of wine, that a Jew cannot cause something that does not belong to him to become forbidden. I can't make your wine idolatrous wine. Because it's your wine, it's not my wine. I have to have ownership in it. However, if he has partnership, the wine belongs to him, even 10%. In that case, then if he can invalidate his part, he can invalidate everybody else's part. Or it was known that he was a Jew who renounced his connection to Judaism. This is what we call a mummer, an apostate, which has the law of a non-Jew for these purposes. For all practical purposes, a Jew who is an apostate becomes like an idolater. Or he's given a warning, he acknowledges it. He's told, don't do it. He acknowledges it and then disobeys, which makes him an apostate. In these situations, he can actually cause the wine to become forbidden. And in that case, he did damage. He's obligated to pay. Now, the question is, we learn repeatedly, that a person always receives the more experiences the more severe punishment, always exempting it from the less severe punishment. In this case, idolatry, especially with a warning, is culpable, is liable for death penalty. How could you say he has to pay? There's never payment when there's a death penalty. How's this guy going to be forced to pay? He has to go on trial for capital punishment. He's an idolater, and he was warned. And here we learned this halacha, because the prohibition kicked in at a different time. Already, from the time he lifted it up, he's obligated to pay. And therefore, both of these things could kick in. Because it already kicked in. I'm sorry, he's not obligated for his life until he actually pours it. Anybody who causes somebody else's financial holdings to be damaged. And the guy says, I don't have, I'm, how does the expression go? I'm judgment proof. I have no money. My bank accounts have no money in them. Then you start selling his best real estate. Like any other perpetrators of damage. Even though he doesn't actually cause the damage in the final act. Held who agreed being that he's the first cause. High of he's liable. And here the Rambam gives an example. Eight for example. How could it be this scenario? If somebody throws his own vessel, they got from a rooftop. He's throwing it from the rooftop. I guess he's cleaning off his roof. He has a bunch of pillows and blankets on the ground, and he throws it down because he knows that the pillow or blanket or pillows and blankets are going to absorb it, and his crystal is not going to break or his pottery or whatever. As his object is flying through the air, some wise guy comes. May Allah to remove the pillows. What did he do? I took the pillow away. And the utensil hit the ground, and the broke. This person removes the pillows, has to pay 100% of the damages, as if he went by hand and took it. Because the removal of the pillows and blankets caused it to be broken. Or anything similar. Next scenario, he throws somebody else's utensil from a rooftop. On that guy's pillows and blankets. The and the owner of the utensils comes and he moved the pillows. Here, the one who threw is culpable. Because he's throwing the is the first cause for the breaking of the utensil. That's if the owner himself removed the pillows and blankets. But if somebody else came along, they're both culpable. The one who threw, and the one who removes, because they both caused the loss of this fellow's money. Similarly speaking, in tests, what if somebody burns a promissory note belonging to someone else, for example, in our day? You have a check, and there's no way to prove that that check existed. It's all you have is a check. The one who burned the promissory note is obligated to pay the loss, the debt that can no longer be connected, collected rather, due to the burning of this note. Even though you could say, and very often they have it on documents, the cash value of this document is a quarter of a penny. It could have been a $10 million check where you have no records and no way of collecting other than this check. Even though the body of the document is not worth anything, and they got him out of that moment, but this act of burning this promissory note caused a tremendous financial loss. Provided that, as long as the perpetrator will agree that this note has been validated in the courts. That's what they used to do back then. They used to take the note to the court. The court used to research the signatures. They used to put a stamp of validation on it. Otherwise, a note is not really worth anything if you can't validate it. And the perpetrator admits that this is, this is what written. It was a $10 million note. There is no other way to collect on this debt. There are no other documents or witnesses. I mean, obviously, he can't collect uh, money, whether it's a dollar or a fruit or a million dollars or $10 million, when he can go tomorrow and find another way to collect. But if the perpetrator doesn't really believe the whole story, all he has to pay is the value of the paper, which could be a quarter of a penny. If it's less than a fruit, he probably doesn't have to pay anything. Similarly speaking, what if Mr. A, Rubik, was demanding, collecting, trying to collect a note from Shimon, collect a debt. So Rubin had a note that says that Shimon owed him money, and he's been trying to collect it, and it hasn't gone very well. So what he does is, he sold the note, probably at a discounted rate, to a third party, to Mr. C, who he calls here Levi. So you have Rubin, who has the note, Shimon, who has the obligation, Levi, who buys the note at a discounted rate. And those are my words, the discounted And then here's the problem. Reuben goes, after he sold the note to Levi, and he says to Shimon, you know what? You're a good guy. I forgive this obligation. You don't have to pay me. Whoops, that's a problem. Now Levi, the buyer, is holding an uncollectible note because it was forgiven. And the halacha is, even though you sell a note, being that it's your note, you can still forgive it. So Shimon no longer has to make the payment of this debt, as we will explain in those halachas. So now Reuben, Mr. A, caused tremendous damage to Mr. C, to Levi, to whom he sold the note. Now Reuben, Mr. A, has to pay Mr. C, has to pay Levi everything that is in the note. Everything? If it was a million dollar note and he discounted it and sold it for half a million dollars, does he have to pay him? What, Levi paid? No, he has to pay the whole million. 
caused him to lose a note. to be burned. And so also, if Reuben's heir said, "Listen, you're a good guy, Mr. Shimon, I forgive you." The heir who forgave it, causing tremendous damage to the buyer, has to pay from the best of his properties. If he has no cash, So also, if a person designates his servant as an apaytiki, the simple translation of apaytiki is collateral. It's made up of three words. Your debt shall rest on this. He takes a slave that he has or a servant, and he says, "Here, this is the collateral for your debt. This is your apaytiki. If, if your debt is not paid, you get to keep the servant." And then he goes and liberates the servant. So now what happened to the collateral? Not worth very much. So now the one who liberated has to pay the debt. Because he took the collateral off. He caused the loss of funds. And the courts actually force the person with the collateral to liberate the slave as well. Because the owner liberated him. In order that he not meet him in the street in front of witnesses and say to him, Hey, you're my slave. It's not going to help him marry off his children. Remember the days of slavery and so on and so forth. When I say remember, I don't mean we should remember, but remember by Torah law, there are the many details of the laws of slavery and so on. So also he pushes his friend and a valuable coin, or at least more than a pruta. When his galgum falls into the sea, somebody is standing, leaning over the rail, overlooking the beautiful LA River. He's holding a gorgeous coin in his hand, worth hundreds of dollars, millions of dollars. Somebody comes, slaps him in the back, boom. The coin is gone. So also somebody blemishes the ear of a cow, where you can no longer offer it as a sacrifice or what have you. In all of these, Chayyab Shalom is obligated to pay. Because he caused the Lessening of its value. So also, somebody scraping the surface of valuable coins belonging to his friend. To removing the face of the coin, you look at it and you can't tell which president is on it. He has to pay because here is the law of Gairim. Causing. In other words, his act was a cause for the result of the coin being less valuable. What if somebody throws a utensil from a rooftop to the earth? There was nothing under it. So this crystal, utensil, this crystal vase, is going to break as soon as it hits the concrete. Crystal ball. They call them Achar. Somebody else is walking by with a baseball bat. And he says, Hey, this looks like fun. This crystal ball is going to break anyway. How do I know? Because I see it in the crystal ball. That was a joke. Well, Shmari Bamako, and he breaks it with a stick, with his bat. Kishubabir, as it's in the air. Kadim Shagi Lars before it hits the earth. So now the question is, who broke it? And he said, the first one, but it is exempt. He said, The first one, he says, I mean, the one who hits it. Instead, the person who threw the utensil is liable. Why? Because he broke something that's certainly going to be broken in a few seconds. So he broke a broken utensil. He broke a broken vessel. It's not called a bonum. It's not called a cause of the damage. Anything similar is not liable. What if there was an ox? And due to the court procedure, the ox was condemned to death because it harmed society or the Elon or a tree. Was determined that this tree must be cut down because it brings harm to the public. And one person comes along and killed. He slaughtered this ox. The ox that was condemned to death by the courts. He cut down this tree. Let's say the tree was, in modern terminology, blocking a stop sign, blocking a, a red light. You can't see it, so it has to be trimmed. The government says so. Somebody went and trimmed it. He has to pay the owners as the judge will determine. Why? Because when the court says you have to kill your ox, or your ox has to be killed, or the court says you have to cut down your tree, it's a mitzvah to do, because it's the right thing. The guy who went and did it for you took away your mitzvah. Stop the owner from doing a mitzvah. And if the guy says, what do you want? I should pay you. You told me to kill the ox. Well, the court says, you told me to cut down the tree. This is his position, and there's no proof. Somebody slaughters a wild animal such as a deer or any type of kosher fowl, then there's the law of kisui hadam. We have to cover the blood. There's actually a bracha you make. To cover blood with earth. So it's the mitzvah of the one who slaughters to cover. Somebody else came and covered it. Just walking right into the guy's business and just doing the mitzvah. Stealing a mitzvah from him. That's why, for example, if you've ever been to Kaporis, the Erevim Kippur ritual where the chicken is slaughtered in front of us, we have to ask the shochet for permission. May I cover the blood? Because it's the shochet's prerogative. Again, this can be evaluated by the courts and they will determine. Yes, Mishahed, some have ruled. That there's a set fee for any of the above. It would be 10 gold pieces. And this was the ruling. I say, anyone who prevents the owner of an object from performing his mitzvah, which they are fit to do, somebody else went, beat him to it, and did it. Should pay the owner 10 zehubim. So this is a practice instituted in many communities. Someone who does damage with his hand is the damage is evaluated just as if his money does damage. For example, earlier we learned about how your ox doing damage. Just as your ox does damage, there's a whole system involved, so also if the person's physical hand did damage, there's a similar system involved. For example, if somebody killed somebody else's animal, a shiba caleb broke his utensils, then similar to an ox, you evaluate how much this animal that was killed was worth. The common and how much the carcass is worth. The common how much the utensil was worth, when it was complete, how much it's worth now. And he pays the lessening, the difference, to the victim owner, together with the carcass or the broken utensil, as we explained, identical to the laws of when one's ox does damage. It's one law. What if somebody went and treads on somebody else's grapes? I was about to tread on my grapes and make wine for Kiddush. 
Somebody else comes and treads on my grapes. Shomin lehezeka, you evaluate the damage of chen kolkayetsu by anything similar, which means, just as we learned in great detail the procedure of what happens when my ox does damage, in a similar vein, laws are imposed when a person does damage. When you collect the damage, meaning the difference between a live animal and a dead animal, a whole utensil and a broken utensil, from the perpetrator, the first choice of where to get payment from is always from the person's movable objects. You take his money, you take his portable movable values, you take his cell phone, his computer. What if the guy says, I don't have, and he has, he doesn't have. You then go to his real estate. Which real estate? The best. So also a similar law exists in cases where ha'enes, if somebody rapes a young maiden or seduces her or someone spreads gossip, all of these laws, there are definitive fines outlined in the Torah. What if the guy doesn't have? All of these, the money is collected from the best of his properties. And as we've mentioned many times, there are various laws. Certain situations are taken from the best, certain from the intermediate, certain from the worst. Damages are from the best. What if somebody did damage to somebody else's financial holdings, but he's not really sure what? But the guy whose holdings it is, is sure. The victim, owner, swears, using the oath of the ordinance of our sages. If he does that oath, if he swears, then he takes what he claims. Provided that what he claims was damage, was stuff that we know he would even own. As we explained earlier in the laws of robbery. But if the guy says, you broke into my garage and you stole my car, and we know that for years, the guy has been driving an old, broken-down Ford, and they say, what did you have in your garage? And he says, I had a Maserati. Well, you know and I know this guy didn't have a Maserati. Because you never saw a Maserati, except in a picture. So it has to be something that is suitable and credible for him to have had. Kate for example, look, if he took a purse belonging to someone else, we threw it into the sea, into the ocean. Elaisha threw it into the fire, or he gave it to a strong man, a bully, a lawless person, and it's gone. So now there's no chance of ever recovering this person, because it's either at the bottom of the ocean, or it was consumed in a horrible fire, or this really bad guy took it, and he's already in China with it. Balak, he's saying there, so he said, okay, I'll pay you. Tell me what you had in the purse. He says, what did I have? So who did my money? It was filled with gold. You know what gold costs these days? For ounce. The perpetrator says, maybe. But in your day, I'm really not sure what was in it. Maybe nothing. Maybe a rolled up Chinese newspaper. Who knows? Shema offer. It was heavy. Okay, maybe it was dirt. It was light. Maybe it was straw. But the victim, owner of the purse, says, I know exactly what was there. A million dollars of gold pieces. The victim, owner, takes an oath. And the Kitas is holding a holy object like a Torah, or in some cases, film, and he takes it. But who provided that sheet and what she wanted for him that his argument can be supported by a reality of what this guy does in his life? Or maybe it wasn't his, but he's usually entrusted to safekeep these expensive items. And it would be normal to place it into a purse or create it by a similar. It's not a normal thing. Who puts this kind of valuable stuff in an old uh, purse? And who parsha the guy perpetrated the crime to himself because he was not responsible, he was negligent. Kesad, for example, if somebody grabbed a chemas, like a, a, a pitcher, a sack, a sal or a basket, covered and filled, and threw it into the sea, I started to burn them. He didn't know what was in this object that he threw into the sea or burned. All he knew it was an object. It was a basket. It was a box. And the victim owner argues, you don't know what was in there. Let me tell you what was in there. Pearls. And he's not believed. He also can't have him swear. Because people don't put expensive pearls in baskets or sacks. People put pearls in containers that are prepared, that are created to hold pearls in a pearl box. I guess even better would be an oyster. What if he grabbed the victim owner, grabbed property, because this is actually debated in the oral law, yes, no, yes, no. So the principle kicks in if he grabs the property. And we see the other, we don't force it, we remove it. Ellen Nishma, you can swear. Shemagol, you saw you bought that it had pearls. But Nikolai takes, we mash yesterday, whatever he has, and anything similar. You test. You're the Hamazik, Shaki, saw you bezo. What if the perpetrator knew that this purse had gold? The wallet had gold. But he's not sure how much gold, how many pieces, what the value was. I know it had gold pieces, but I don't know how many. The Hamazik, the victim, says, I know how many. Ella, for you, was a thousand. So he collects a thousand and doesn't even have to have an oath because he admitted that it exists. He doesn't know. The guy does know. Why doesn't he take an oath? Maybe Yachal Yishavi can't take an oath, even though it appears that he's a mother of the Mixas. Kamesh Yispire, being a Pikodin, as we explained in great detail in the chapter of Pikodin. Because whenever there's a Mixas, whenever, whenever he admits part of it, he has to take an oath. He cannot take this oath because he admits he doesn't know the number of gold pieces the wallet contained. He can't swear to what you don't know. Therefore, there is no choice but to pay. End of chapter 7. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Chayvah, Lamazic, damage and injury, Hedek Shmini, the last and the closing chapter of these halachas. And this particular chapter has 15 paragraphs, very interesting laws. There is a word called Moser. The word Moser is loosely translated as an informer. Imagine in the times of hostile governments, the Roman governments, the Spanish Inquisition, communist governments, Nazi Germany, and so on and so on and so forth. Certainly countries where there wasn't even a dream of any type of fair law and order. If somebody takes someone's money, and the first halacha says, what does he do with the money? He hands it beyond anos, into the hand of an anos. The word anos comes from the word ones. This guy makes accidents. This guy's a bad guy. He's a strong, lawless bully. 
and he does whatever he wants to, and nobody bothers him. So Mr. A takes Mr. B's money and gives it to the Yanos. You're not going to see it again. That's the outright damage. He has to pay from the best of his holdings, of his real estate holdings. Mean Mason, if he dies, Gabriel Yershev is collected from his estate. Kishar Kalamazik, like any other, cause people who cause damage. Kiva Shoya Anas. I'm sorry. Bain Shahoya Ha'anos. Whether this strongman, lawless strongman, bully, was an idol worshiper. Bain Shahoya Yisrael, he could even be a Jew. It makes no difference. The fact is, he's someone who's above the law. And he does what he wants to. He bullies people. Hanezeh Hamaisa, the one who delivers and informs him. Chayyab Shalim is liable to pay. Kol Mashalakah Honas, whatever the guy took. Even though the informer himself didn't carry the objects, the Lenosabiyadi didn't hand it over to him. He just informed him. He just shared information with him. He has to pay. When does this apply? If the informer did this on his own, but if this idolatrous bully or even Jewish lawless strongman forced him to tell where this this guy has his money, the head and then he did because he was coerced to do so. He's exempt from payment. Doesn't have to pay. But if he did it by hand, even though he's being forced, he has to pay. In general, if somebody saves himself with somebody else's money, he's obligated to pay. What does this mean? Why would he be obligated to pay? Isn't there a law that by Jewish law you can save a life violating any commandment except for three? Surely you can save your life by giving somebody else's money away. The answer is, of course you can. And you should. You just have to pay for it. It's not a question of whether you can save your life. That's not the issue. The issue is you have to pay for it. The answer is, of course you do. Ketzad, for example. What if the king, it's the rule of kings, and the king decreed that he wants wine or straw or what have you. And the informer stood up and said, Hey, Mr. King. Or he said to the, all the king's horses and all the king's men. So-and-so. He has a whole stock room, a whole warehouse of wine. Hey, Kevin or straw, but can't this in this place. And they went to the and they took it. The informer has to pay. Who asked you to inform where I have my wine or straw? The king didn't ask you where my wine is. He said he's looking for mine. He's looking for wine. You told him my wine, you paid. However, I'm not saying I'm not like the king forced. Lamey says that to this fellow, this informer actually, you know, they put a gun to his head and he said, You better tell me, where there are storehouses of wine or I shoot you. And the king said, I want to see this guy's storehouses of wine or straw. Because he took off. The head of the guy had no choice. And he showed it to him. He's a now he's exempt. Had he not shown it to him, you said the guy would hit him or kill him. And the guy asked, the king asked directly for his property. What if he's holding somebody else's money in his hand? When a son of and he gave it to this lawless strong man, in any event, he has to pay. Even though the king coerced him to bring it because it was in his hands. That if he forced him to bring any broth, he's liable. If the money didn't actually reach the domain of this strong man, but a strong man, a lawless strong man, forced the Jew until he showed him where somebody's money is. And the guy then took control of the money and it entered into his domain. And he forced the Jew to take him to the next place. And show me more. Oh, even if he, the Moser led him, he's not culpable to pay because he was there on location. Being that the lawless strong man is there by this storage place, everything in this storehouse is gone. It's as if it's burned because the presence of this guy makes it as if it was already burned. Next case, litigants. Choice of a name, but who were fighting over real estate. The other one says it's mine. The other says it's mine. What happens when Jews have a dispute? They have to take it to a Jewish court. And one of them went and handed the question over to an idolatrous court in a time and place that a Jewish court would have authority to enforce this. They actually ostracize him until he causes things to revert back to status quo. And he removes this bully that he involved. He also didn't be Israel and will cause the question to be brought before a Jewish court. Now there's a lot of discussion here. When can somebody take someone to court? When someone cannot take someone to court? And I don't want to go into any opinions because this is not the class of practical halacha. We always have to go to the end, but basically, if there is a Jewish court who can deal with the issue and enforce it, then we should always go to a Jewish court. If the Jewish court rules, and they say, listen, we cannot deal with this issue, we cannot enforce it, the guy's not going to listen to us, you have the right to go to a general court, to a Gentile court, then the court sanctioned him to go to a general court. That's, again, theoretically, practically speaking, one needs to pose this question to a Jewish court. Well, back to the issue here. When a person was captured, <coughs> apprehended, by by Harsh idol worshippers who took money from him because of what someone else does or did. The other one does not have to pay. There's no reimbursement. Because the money was taken without legal process, the debtor can claim he would have found a way to avoid the payment. There's no scenario where something is forcibly taken from somebody because of someone else where he has to pay. There would be an exception. If there is a standard head tax levied against every man annually, and the king's tax man comes and takes from his next door neighbor until his neighbor pays because he disappeared. Or there's a mandated gift that everybody gives the king while he passes by or his armies pass by. And they took this gift from the next door neighbor because the neighbor ran away. 
Then, because it's clear and definitive, as long as they specify that they're taking from him, specifically because of this and this guy, in front of witnesses, it's not just theoretical stuff. What if there are witnesses that a person informed about property belonging to his fellow? They're witnesses. Again, for example, he himself showed them a shenanas, or they, were, they forced him, and he went and gave them. All the witnesses know is that he informed. They're not sure how much he cost them. And the person whose money was handed over says, You may not know, but I know. And the informer denies. That which he says. If the person actually did it on his own, and they don't forcibly remove it from his domain, he swears holding a holy object, and he takes what he grabbed. But if he did not grab so we don't forcibly remove it. Only with clear proof. We do not cause the informer to swear if he showed on his own. Where he holds a Torah or it's filmed. Why? Because he has no credibility. Because he's an informer, we can't believe a word he says. Because he's considered wicked. There's nobody who is more unfit to take an oath than this guy. But an informer, where they forced him to show, I love you to bring with us any weapon, and he gave, even though he's obligated to pay in some cases, in Russia, he's not considered wicked. He simply owes a debt. He may swear, and may be forced to swear for Shah, treat him like any other kosher person. It is forbidden to hand, to deliver a person into the hand of idolatrous people. Whether physically, or financially, even if this man was a wicked man and a sinful man, even if this man tormented him and bothered him, he called him names and so on. You're not allowed to deliver him to an idolatrous court. Anybody who does, deliver him to an idolatrous court. Whether physically, or financially, he loses his portion in the world to come. Now, I'll just read a note here from the most naive Rambam in the present age. When rabbinic courts do not have punitive powers, there are conditions that allow a person to seek redress from a colleague by employing a Gentile or secular legal system. But before doing so, however, he must consult a rabbinic court and obtain license from them. If he does obtain such license, he's not considered a moser for appealing to secular courts because the rabbinic responsible rabbinic court gave him permission to do so. And again, we don't draw final conclusions from Rambam's study. We just learn generalities. Tess. Also, uh, we did that already. When there is somebody who informs the government against his fellow Jews, imagine if somebody in Nazi Germany or in communist Russia goes to the government and says, this guy, he did this, he did this, and so on. The guy's a murderer. So it is permissible to kill the man. That's what the underground used to do. The underground used to kill the bad guys. Even nowadays, says the Rambam, where nowadays could be the Mishnah and the days, when there is no Jewish court enacting capital punishment, even now it is permitted to do so. And you talk to people who survived the Holocaust, you talk to people who survived the Gulags in Russia, and they'll tell you that from time to time they have to take someone out because he was turning too many people in or threatening to do so. It is also permissible to kill him before he does it. As soon as he says, I'm going to deliver this guy physically or financially, even if it's a relatively speaking minor amount of money, he cannot be the Mishnah. He opens himself up to death. And we warn him, and we say to him, don't do it. If he was insolent, he had chutzpah, he said brazenly, I will so, then it's a mitzvah to kill him. And again, there are many such stories in difficult times. Anybody who kills him first gets the mitzvah. Okay. If the Maeser carried out his threat and informed a hostile government on a fellow Jew, it appears to me that once the deed is done, it's forbidden to kill him. If there's a Jewish court, you take him to court. Unless he regularly does this, then you'll save many lives. Then he should be punished. Perhaps he'll do it to others. So the Rambam says, in the countries of the West, what is the Rambam referring to? When he says the countries of the West, California, Oregon, no, probably not. He's talking about Spain, where they punished informers. That regularly went and reported people to governments, even for financial matters. It's permissible to hand them into the courts of idolaters, launch them to punish them, lock them into, smite them, them into lock them up, according to their wickedness. Because you have to protect the community from these informers. Anybody who causes difficulty and harassment to the community, you can hand them over to a Gentile idolatrous court, to smite him, to arrest him, to penalize him. It is forbidden to do it because it caused one guy a difficult harm. We're talking about a guy who's established a reputation that he regularly does this. It is forbidden to do away with the financial holdings of this informer, even though it's permissible to punish him and to have him arrested and beaten or what have you, but not his money. Why? Because even if he dies, his money belongs to his estate and you have no right to take money away from his estate. Now the Rambam segues to the laws of a Reideh. A Reideh means someone who pursues someone else to kill him. If somebody is running after somebody to kill him, or somebody is running after somebody to rape them, could be a, a woman, could be a man, who wants to rape a man or what have you, makes no difference. But he's running. And as he's running to murder or to do another crime, he breaks somebody's utensils. Whether it belongs to the person he was running after, whether it belongs to anybody, does he have to pay for the damage that he was doing while he was pursuing this guy to kill him? The law is exempt. Why? Because of the principle of because he has a bigger problem, and that is he's facing a death penalty. Because he's liable for death. As soon as he pursued someone to kill him, or even to rape, he opens himself up to the possibility that somebody may kill him. 
which we learned earlier, is permissible. And just as one is allowed to kill the Rodev, he can destroy his property as a deterrent, and so on. Near the Shishiba Kalim Shoredev, that which I just said applies to 13. Someone who is running broke the utensils of the one running after him, but he's exempt. If he can kill him, surely he can ruin his property. But if he ruined other people's property, if he destroyed other people's property, he broke it, Chayav is guilty, he's culpable. Because to save oneself, we talked about this earlier, with somebody else's money, it's a wonderful mitzvah, but Chayav, you just have to pay for it. Somebody is pursuing a pursuer to help the person who is being pursued. He broke utensils. Then the pursuer, then call anybody else. Potter is exempt. Not by law, because by law, by law he would be culpable and liable. Because you can't break somebody else's things to be exempt. They are exempt by rabbinic ordinance. Why? Because the rabbinic ordinance was passed because our sages were concerned that people would not want to help anybody. Because you're chasing a bad guy, you may harm somebody else's property on the way. Better not. Why don't you take chances? A person should not hesitate to save someone else because he might do financial damage, or he should not procrastinate, and he should be overly cautious. When he pursues, if you pursue, you pursue. It's like the, uh, the police cars who are running after bad guys and they're always <laughs> banging into other <laughs> people's properties and cars and so on. Final law. If a boat, which is heavily loaded, is about to go under, it's about to break, and clearly the experts say, because there's too much weight on this boat, it exceeded the weight level. And one guy on the boat, he stood up courageously, he took a leadership position, and he lightened the load, he stood by and cast it into the water. The problem is the load he lightened was my load. Potter, he's exempt. Why is he exempt? You have to imagine that the load is like a pursuer who's threatening the whole ship. Although he willfully destroyed property belonging to others, he's not liable. Because of the reason that the Rambam will explain. So what happens? And here he does explain something very important. Brought down by the commentaries on the Rambam. Instead, the loss is borne equally by all the people who own cargo on the ship. So it has to be spread equally. As is reflected in the Rambam's rulings in Hilchus Gzela Baveda, chapter 12, 14. <clears throat> if, however, only one person's cargo was tossed, then he should be reimbursed by others. Or... You take the Rambam literally, and the Rambam is talking about the last person who loaded his load on. So he's the one that created the problem. Back to the Rambam. Because this load is like a pursuer who wants to kill all the people on the ship. He did a tremendous mitzvah. He threw it overboard and he saved them. This concludes the laws of injury and damages. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, the laws of a murderer. And along with that, the laws of protection of life. In general terms, there are Shva Esrei Mitzvah, 17 Mitzvahs. Sheva Mitzvah Asay, 7 positive commandments. The Eser Mitzvah Leisase, and 10 negative commandments. Vizehu Proton, and these are the details. Aleph Mitzvah number 1, Shalei Liritzeach, not to murder. And here I just want to parenthetically state that when people interpret or translate the 10 commandments, the, ten, the Mitzvah is usually mistranslated. Usually people say, Thou shalt not kill. That's not true. It's a Mitzvah to kill bad people. If you're in a war and you have to kill the bad guys, you kill the bad guys. If there's a court, and they have to administer capital punishment. You kill. If somebody's coming to murder you, you murder them before they murder you. It's not murder, it's killing. So sometimes it's a mitzvah to kill. The prohibition is not to murder. Murdering means killing someone who did not deserve to be killed. So we're going to learn all these details. But that's an important factor. The Torah does not believe in the idea of a conscientious objector. Because taking a life sometimes is a mitzvah. Because you're going to save a lot of lives. When somebody murders, the second mitzvah is not to take ransom from him. He says, listen, I murdered. I'm sorry. Here's a million dollars to the community chest. You'll help a lot of poor people. Don't kill me. Uh-huh. You can't pay your way out of a death sentence. Elayumas, if the court finds him liable for death penalty, so be it. You can't buy your way out. If you just hire a good lawyer. Gimel, I'm sorry, Gimel, as we will learn in great detail. If somebody kills inadvertently, which is called manslaughter, somebody accidentally kills, then the Torah mandates that he goes to city of refuge. It's the same law. You can't have somebody pay money and say, why do you want me to go to the city of refuge? I will not accomplish anything there. Here's a million dollars. Let me stay here. You can't buy your way out of a crime. Hey, five, the murderer should not be killed before he stands in court, which means there should not be any vigilante justice. You can't put a posse together and hang the guy. You have to bring him to court. What if somebody did murder or kill someone? And we don't know exactly what happened. All we know is the victim's brother is running after him and trying to kill him. You have to save the person who is fleeing from the guy who wants to kill him. Because this has to be tried in court. No vigilante justice. Zayin In a case where one person pursues someone else and wants to kill him, it says do not have compassion upon the pursuer. Don't feel bad for the bad guy. You should feel bad for the good guy, not for the bad guy. Don't get compassionate for the bad guy. There's a famous Medrash or Gemara. He who is kind to the cruel will ultimately be cruel to the kind. You don't be kind to the cruel. Ches, another mitzvah. You can't stand there and watch somebody's blood being spilled. You say, hey, it's not my business. I'm going to mind my own business. Somebody's drowning. Someone's being murdered. You can stop him. You can save him. That's the mitzvah of Losamod. Do not stand by and watch your, blood, your brother's blood be spilled. Tes, or in Mikla, to set aside cities of refuge. We know that there were six cities of refuge 
three in Israel proper, three in Transjordan. There'll be three more when Mashiach comes, it says. When Israel will be broadened and widened and enlarged, and to make sure that there are good signs and good markers and good directions. Because when the manslayer is fleeing to the city of refuge, you better not make your own turn and end up in Pakoima. There is the law of somebody who finds a John Doe, a corpse, murdered in the middle of nowhere. You have to measure to the closest city, and there's a ritual called Egrola Arupa, which is done. That mitzvah we're going to talk about. That that area where this ritual is done should not be worked with, should not be planted. There is a mitzvah not to allow blood to come into our home. In other words, not to allow dangerous things. When somebody builds a house and has a flat root, to make a parapet, a gate around the roof, a similar law today would be to gate your swimming pool. Because it's dangerous. Not to let somebody innocent stumble on something and get hurt. When somebody's animal collapses on the road to help unload it, to help load with him, and we're going to learn what the connection to these laws are, with these, to, to, what the connection these laws have to this category. Not to abandon the person with his burden and just go on his way. The explanation of all these mitzvahs, the Prokamelo, the upcoming chapters. Pedicretion, chapter 1. Call ben Odom, anyone who kills, who murders the soul of any human being, Jew, non-Jew, according to this teaching in the Rambam, Eiber transgresses a negative commandment. And as it says, do not murder. It's in the Ten Commandments. and if he murdered, wantonly, intentionally, before witnesses, then there could be the application by the court of a death penalty. What kind of death penalty? We know in Torah law there are four different death penalties. We will learn about them. This particular death penalty is called besayif, with the sword, decapitation. Shanemar, as the verse says, no king, you no king, you shall surely be avenged. The Piyashmu Alamdu, from tradition we learn, what is the meaning of this expression? Shazay, Misa Sayyif, it's by the sword. Kivan Shaharis Haveri Bibarzel, I'm sorry, Bain Shaharis Haveri Bibarzel. Now, death via the courts by the sword applies whether somebody killed the victim with a sword or other metal weapon. Bain Shaharis Haveri or he burned him by fire. I would think if he burned the victim by fire, he should be killed by fire. No. Murder is avenged by the court, possibly finding that a death penalty should be brought about, and it is by the sword. The saucy Messiah, the death is by sword, and the Rambam, like always, is building a building. He's starting from chapter one, laying down the basics, and building from there. Bays, who actually kills the murderer at the end of the day? Mitzvah, it is the biggest mitzvah, the relative, the closest relatives of the victim. Lari, I would say, I get to kill the murderer by court. I mean, obviously, the court has to try the person, but ultimately, who's the executioner? The relative. If he wants to. Shanam, as it says, the redeemer of blood, which refers to a close relative, who, Yom Yisrael, say, he shall kill the murderer. Not vigilante, but by court process. What's considered a close relative? Anyone who is on the list of being an heir, and we're going to learn in great detail who is an heir. What if the relative, the heir, says, I don't want to kill? It's not what I do. He wasn't able to. What we call in Yiddish, Adam Dekechkit. He was a very refined person. He can't see himself doing this. Or the person has no close relative. Beside the court gets a court appointed executioner and does the execution. Gimel 3, Ha'ov, Shahadagas Benoit. What if you have the following scenario? A father murders his son. Now the question is, can the son kill the father? That's a big no no. If the victim has a son, actually the father killed the son, so the son is dead. So now who's the relative? The son's son. But a grandson also can't be disrespectful to his grandfather. Still here, that mitzvah overwhelms the prohibition. If he does kill his grandfather, because he is the heir. What if the victim has no son? It's inappropriate for one of the victim's brothers to be this executioner because he will be killing his own father. The courts kill him. We talk about the close relative actually doing this. It's male or female. It's not a male law or female law. Anybody, either gender. The court is admonished. The court is commanded, enjoined. Not to take ransom money from the murderer. A person cannot buy their way out of a death penalty. Even if he paid all the money in the world. All of Bill Gates' money. Even if the close relative says, listen, it's okay. We don't need you to die. Go home. Live a nice life. I forgive you. Because the life of this victim does not belong to his relative who has the option to forgive. Relatives have a mitzvah to kill by court order, but they don't have the right to forgive. This life belongs to God Almighty. And the Torah says, You shall not take ransom for the soul of a murderer. Now, the Rambam lets us know as he builds this building in chapter 1, there is no possible existence in the world. Prohibition. All of which the Torah was concerned with, as much as murderer. Do not pollute the land by letting murderers run amok. You pollute the land. Kihadom says the verse, because blood, who yachnif esaris, pollutes the land. You thought it was machinery. You thought it was pollution. It's murder, rampant murder that pollutes a land and destroys the civilization. So the Torah says, do not let people use their money to get away with murder. I have shared this in the past, but I'll share it again because it's appropriate. The last weekend that I got to visit my father before he passed away, my father passed away in 2001. 
I spent the weekend with him about six weeks before he passed away in Maplewood, New Jersey. He was very weak. We were walking. We took a 15-minute walk to Shul, which took us about 45 minutes due to his weakened condition. And as we're walking back from Shul, there's this guy across the street who looks a little bit out of it, and he's screaming at my father, Forgive me, Rabbi! Forgive me! Forgive me! And my father had no strength to talk even. And Midalefti Kachis, with his last amount of energy, said, I will not forgive you! I will not forgive you! And I'm just perplexed. What is going on here? So I say to my father, Who is this guy? He says, Oh, you don't know the captain. He says, This guy introduced himself to me many years ago. He says he was a, a captain or a guard or a big macher in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. He says, And he came to me one day and he says, I could have saved many lives due to my not getting involved. Many Jews died. I feel blood on my hands. Forgive me, Rabbi, forgive me. My father says, Are you kidding? I should forgive you. Talk to God. Let him forgive you. I will not forgive you. Anyway, the guy took to drinking. He became an alcoholic. He became dysfunctional. And every so often I see him in the street and he yells at me, Rabbi, forgive me. And I say to him, I will not forgive you. Who are we to forgive people who murder? That's up to God. So that's the story with even a close relative cannot forgive a murderer. Murdering someone is committing a transgression against God Almighty. Hey, a murderer who killed wantonly and intentionally, willfully. The witnesses cannot kill him right there. Or the people who observe cannot kill him right there. That's vigilante. That's not kosher. This person has to be brought to court. And if he meets all the requirements of Jewish law, they, the court, might sentence him to death. Or not. Because it's not by Jewish law. It's not so simple to meet all these requirements as we will learn. The murderer should not die before he stands before the people, the community. In judgment. The who I mean, the same law applies to any other situation which warrants the death penalty by court. who transgressed and did and then never killed until a judgment is passed, a sentence is invoked by the court. You can't just do it on your own. Now he says this is all true after the fact. When does this apply? If he transgressed and did the deed, he did it dirty. of all of Mrs. upon which he is culpable and liable for the death penalty. But if he's about to do it, <coughs> if a person is running after someone else and is going to kill him. Someone is pursuing someone to kill him. I feel even if the person pursuing was a minor, a child, but he's got a gun. And it looks to us like he's about to kill the guy. So we can save a life. How they call Yisrael, every single Jew. Mitsubin are commanded to save this person who is running from his pursuer. Now, if possible, you stop it without killing the pursuer. You shoot him in the leg. You shoot him in the arm. If need be, you kill him. Because you're saving a life by killing a pursuer if that's the only way to stop him. And this is a broad wide-ranging, far-reaching law. Ketzad, for example, in his hiru, if he warned him, and he's running after him, and you say to him, hey, stop it! Don't kill him! Even though he didn't acknowledge or accept this warning, but he's still pursuing the guy, and getting him, he can and should be killed if need be. However, by taking one of his limbs, for example, you get him with an arrow, with a stone, with a sword, and cut off his arm, or break his leg, or blind him, that's certainly preferable. You aim for a body limb before you actually aim for the head or the chest. What if you can't be focused and make sure you're going to hit a body part? Unless you kill him, it's perfectly acceptable to kill him because he's trying to kill the guy. Even though he didn't get killed. Now there's actually a verse in the Torah, which as the verse says, you must cut off her hand. The Torah has a situation where there are two men fighting and a woman comes and grabs one of the men by his private parts and starts squeezing and is about to kill him because that's one of the areas of the body. Our sages say that can bring about death. It says you have to stop her in any way you have to, even by cutting off her arm. What? It's not nice. Don't have compassion. He who is compassionate to the cruel will ultimately be cruel to the compassionate. This applies to private parts. Or any other body part which is a danger to life. It applies to a man or a woman. Inyan because the verse that we just quoted has a message. Anybody who is intending to kill another, to smite another with something that can't kill them, it doesn't have to, but it can. If we save the person being pursued, even if we have to cut the arm off, or anything else. And if you can't just cut the arm off, you save the person by killing the person, by killing the pursuer. Do not take pity on someone who is about to murder someone. You're pitying the wrong person. This is also a negative commandment. Not to have compassion upon the pursuer. Therefore, our sage is instructed. Here comes a very important law. You know, there's a very big, big topic in the world we live in. It's called abortion. What is the deal with abortion? Is it permissible? Is it not permissible? Is it murder? Is it not murder? Taking the life of an unborn child. So here we have a very interesting law. And this goes against those who say abortion is murder. Well, sometimes it is, maybe. Therefore, our sage is instructed as follows. That a woman who is in labor and she's having difficulty giving birth and her life is in danger. It is permissible to cut the child out even if that kills the child. Whether using poison, using one's hand, or using a knife. Why are you killing a living child? Because the living child is threatening the mother. It's like someone has a gun trying to shoot somebody. The fetus is about to kill his mother. 
So the fetus has the law of a pursuer. Meaning, if a child threatens the life of a mother, you take the unborn child. Because it's like the child, the fetus, not child, the unborn child, the fetus, pursuing the mother to kill her. And therefore, this establishes a whole world of law in Jewish law. When the mother's life is threatened by the unborn fetus, it is permissible. Again, we don't decide law from studying Rambam. This is not simple. This is for academic purposes. But I'm trying to just explain the idea that even an unborn child could be a pursuer. But if the child's head already came forth out of the birth canal into the world, then it's a different game. You don't touch the child. Because with the head out, it's already somewhat of a living entity. You don't take a life for a life. And sometimes the natural course of events is that a woman will not forbid lose her life in childhood once this baby is actually has come into the world again. Very complicated law. We're touching on the surface of this law. It's important that we know the idea. Now that Amman takes this a second step, whether one pursues another with the intent of killing him. And there's another type of pursuit. There's a woman who's betrothed. Betrothed is a legal term for married. She didn't consummate the marriage yet, but she's married. So she's a married woman. And there is a rapist running after her, intending to rape her, which by Torah law is punishable by death. Because having relations with a woman who is married by Torah law is forbidden to the extent of capital punishment under certain circumstances. So here this rapist is running after this woman. And he clearly intends to rape her. So therefore he may, the pursuer, the observer, may run after the rapist and stop him and even kill him. Shenemar, as it says, with regard to the crime of rape in this scenario, it is just as a man stands up against another and murders him, so is the rape of this woman. And the verse says, this betrothed woman cried out, there was no one to help her because she was in the field and not in the city. But if she has someone to help her, he helps her, doing anything it takes. Even in killing the potential rapist. Not only is this law applicable in the case of a nado, of a betrothed woman, who had been the same law is for any other relationships forbidden by Torah law. This is called erva, for example, a close relative, a sister, and so on and so forth. The whole list of arroyos listed in the Torah. Chutz, the exception is, from one who was about to have intimacy with an animal. Abel hazochor, but one who was about to force himself on another male, to rape a man. The life could be taken as well, because by Torah law, this is a death penalty law. So if someone's about to rape even a man, one can save the potential victim from his rapist, even by taking his life, if need be. If that's the only way to save him. Kishar, Kol, Haroyas, like any other forbidden intimacies. There's someone who's trying to rape someone, and that could result in death penalty by Torah law. You save that person in any way you can from this rape. But, somebody's pursuing an animal to have intimacy with it, even though that's also forbidden by Torah law. That should not, then, then one should not murder the person pursuing the animal. One should not kill the person even if the intent is to save the animal. Or, for example, there are many other violations which could result in capital punishment. I should know the Shabbos. The law is that if somebody wantonly and intentionally goes to violate the Shabbos and two witnesses come and tell him, Mister, you're not allowed to do that according to the Torah, and he says, I don't care, and he does it in front of them, this could, under certain circumstances, result in capital punishment. Does, that, does this mean you can kill somebody who's about to violate the Shabbos? Of course not. A is about to worship idols? Of course not. This applies only to a situation of rape which can result in capital punishment. Even though idol worship. These are mainstays of our religion. You should not kill someone who's about to do this. First of all, he has to first do it. And then if there are two kosher witnesses, they can take it to court. And the court has to have a trial. Maybe the almost, maybe they'll find that he's liable for death penalty, maybe not. Now comes an interesting law. There's a big debate in Torah law, and we learned it earlier when we learned about the laws of intimacies. What is considered intimacy between a man and a woman? Is it the beginning of the act of intercourse, or is it the end of the act of intercourse? That's the big issue. So he says here, what if a rapist was pursuing a woman? Where if he has intimacy with her, it could result in the court imposing a death penalty. Usposa, and he grabbed her, he caught her. Vishachabima, and he slept with her. Vehera, but intimacy only began. There was just the beginning of penetration. He did not complete the act. The person observing this should not kill him. Rather take him and force him to court. Because the deed is already done by the beginning of the intimacy. If he's running after a woman whose relationship with him would result in possible death penalty. And others were running after him to save her. And she said to them, please, let him go. Don't, don't threaten him. Why did she say that? Because she was afraid. Don't let him kill me. Now the question is, is it up to her? Is she the one? Or is it an issue between them and God? And shame in law, in the case, as he will explain, if the pursuers are certain they can stop him without endangering her life, they don't have to listen to her. They say they can bring confusion upon him, and prevent him from having intimacy with her. However, by hurting, by maiming one of his limbs, if they're not able to do it by maiming one of his limbs, even by taking his life, as we explained, as long as they're certain that they're not going to be endangering her life, if they are, they should not go after him. What if somebody was trying to save somebody from a pursuer? He could have stopped them by hurting a limb, and he chose not to. He didn't want to bother. He figured the guy's a bad guy. Let me just shoot him in the chest. He took the life of the pursuer and killed him. Then this good guy is a murderer. He could be tried for murder because he could have and should have shot the guy in the leg or the arm or the shoulder. But the court should not actually kill him for this, and in general it would be difficult to do so because there has to be witnesses warned, and it's not such a simple thing. And here comes the next law as we approach the end of this chapter. 14. Out of 16. 
Anyone who can save, give me that remote, please. Anybody who can save somebody, and doesn't, if somebody is in danger, you can save them, and you're elect not to save them. Violate the commandment of the Torah. Do not stand by idly while your brother's blood is being spilled. If somebody sees his fellow, his friend, another person, drowning in the ocean, and he can swim, and he can save him, but he says, I don't want to have a lunch appointment. At least in blame all of he sees bad guys, pirates, robbers about to attack him, gang members. He sees a wild animal coming. And he has the capacity to save him. Obviously, if he doesn't have the capacity to save him, then he's just endangering his own life. That's not smart. A guy should never jump into the ocean to save somebody if he can't swim. Or better yet, he has the ability to hire people, professionals, to save him. Should he bother? He decides not to. It's not my problem. The previous Rebbe was known to have said that one of the greatest illnesses of the American culture is the axiom of mind your own business. In Jewish law, we don't mind our own business. We take responsibility. Or Shashoma, he heard that they were a band of idol worshippers, a Mason, or bad guys who were about to take somebody and hand them over to the government so that they have to pay outlandish taxes or whatever other situations. This is called a Moser. Someone who is threatening someone to hand them over to a bad government. They're planning an evil plan to hurt this person, and he hears about it. Or they're setting a trap for him. And he didn't reveal this to the ears of his fellow. They didn't let him know. And he could have and should have. Or he heard that they were a band of idolaters. Or he heard that there was a bad guy. Onus means somebody who forces people to do things. Shubah Chaveri was about to come upon someone else. He could have convinced the guy not to give him a couple dollars. He could have somehow dealt with the situation to pacify the guy. But like he decided not to. Why should I spend the money, the time, the energy? Or anything similar. Anybody who does these things and stands by idly, transgresses, do not stand and see the blood of your fellow spilled. Obviously, if he does the above and lays out money, the guy has to make him whole. Financially, there's no reason he has to have a financial loss. Test about 15. What if you see somebody pursuing another to kill him? Or pursuing a woman or a person with whom intimacy is forbidden by Torah law. Levala to commit intimacy with her. He can save this person. He doesn't. First of all, he loses the opportunity and nullifies. He violates a positive commandment. Which means if the bystander can save someone through cutting the hands off or whatever it takes of the pursuer, he must. In addition to, in addition to transgressing one positive law, he violates two negative laws. Don't have compassion. Don't let your eyes be compassionate. Don't stand by idly to see the blood of your brother spilled. The closing paragraph of chapter 1. Even though there's no lashes applicable for the violation of these negative commandments. Why? Because one of the axiomatic rules for lashes by court to be imposed are that the person who does, who commits the transgression, has to do something. Here, nobody does anything. It's a lack of doing. There's no deed. By idly standing by, it's lack of doing. So one would think if there are no lashes for these violations, one will think that they are lenient. No, he said the Rambam. They're very severe. This is the most important. And here the Rambam invokes the principle, the famous principle. If someone allows one soul, here the Rambam uses the expression, one Jewish soul, to be lost, it's as if the whole world is lost. If one saves one life, it's as if he saved the entire world. End of chapter 1.